everyone. Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist, and I'm the executive editor of journals at ASCP. Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Moen. I'm the chief information officer at ASCP and one of your co-hosts today. So today we're going to be talking about a cyber attack that affected the laboratory at University of Vermont Medical Center, and I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves. Hi, I am Toby Cornish. I am a GI pathologist and clinical informaticist, the vice chair of informatics at the University of Colorado. I am also the associate editor for informatics at AJCP. So I am not one of the uh, University of Vermont uh, individuals that are joining us today, but I wrote the uh, editorial in the recent uh, issue that preceded their series, introduces their series. Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Goodwin. I am a pathologist at the University of Vermont Medical Center, specializing in transfusion and um, coagulation pathology. I am the vice chair for quality and clinical affairs for our network uh, department, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christy Wojtwoda. I'm the director of the Clinical Microbiology Laboratory at the University of Vermont Medical Center and the vice chair for education at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Hey there, I'm Ann Stoman. I'm a dermatopathologist and director of surgical pathology operations in the AP side of things. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Before we get going on questions, I need to get a little bit of CME housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, guys, so we've got that out of the way, so uh, let's get going. Well, first off, I wanna let our listeners know that they can read all about your experiences with this cyber attack currently on the AJCP website, all of your papers are live now, as well as the April, May, June, and July print issues. As I mentioned before, I'm the executive editor for the journal, so I saw your submissions come through our submission portal. And I have to say, hey, I was super fascinated, especially by the title of the first one. Here, we had a 25-day downtime. I had a small heart attack when I read that. My first question is, uh, when did you realize you had a problem on your hands? And then when did you realize you had a huge problem on your hands, that this wasn't just going to be like a two-hour downtime, but it was going to be a significant, significant downtime? And how did your leadership initially respond? Well, there's things in life that you kind of remember where you were when it happened. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, the Kennedy assassination, you know, 9-11, OJ, and your cyber yeah, attack. Yeah. yeah, OJ Simpson driving down the highway. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things in life that you can point back to and know exactly where you were. And this is definitely one of those events. It was a Wednesday morning. It was sort of mid-morning here on the East Coast. And uh, I remember I was in the blood bank and people were saying, is anybody having some computer issues? I'm having connectivity issues. Not an uncommon phrase to hear. We have little blips here and there. And uh, it really just seemed like early on that this was, you know, a hospital-wide EMR downtime. It didn't seem like anything more than that. I would say within a couple of hours, we heard the whole, you know, the hospital was in downtime mode. We activated, as all good laboratorians do, we pulled out our binders and activated our downtime processes. And there wasn't a lot of information that came out initially. We really did not know the extent of it. 
And it really wasn't, I remember even walking home that night uh, with a neighbor of mine who's a hospitalist at the medical center. And we said, this seems like this is a bigger issue than just a regular old downtime because we're not getting the information. We're not getting regular updates. And there were other things that were not working as well. So certain phone systems that were software driven were not working. Email was not working, which was really unusual. So our normal lines of communication seemed to be down as well. Uh, Christy, Ann, remind me, I don't think we really heard sort of official information as to sort of the extent of this, probably for 24 to 36 hours later. It was like Thursday afternoon, evening, and when it was finally like, oh no, this is a big deal. Was the reason you didn't hear because of the email outage? This is Mark. Yeah, Mark, no, what we learned afterwards is the reason we didn't hear is because this was a crime scene. This was a cyber attack. And we had, I mean, the FBI and Homeland Security showed up pretty darn quickly. And um, because of the nature of this, they were being, our, our hospital leadership was essentially being instructed on how to handle this. We got early on, once we sort of started to understand that this was a, an attack, if you will, we were told, you know, we weren't supposed to on social media, we weren't supposed to text one another about it. Because then I, I guess, I, I'm only speculating here, I guess that gives, you know, some insight to those that levied the cyber attack, an idea of how severe it was, and it could change the course of negotiations or, or whatever might occur subsequently. So Interesting. We, we were asked to be kept quite, be, be quiet about it. And Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but later it came to light that medical center shut down, shut everything down. It wasn't that the attack came and shut things down. It was a, it was an intentional shutdown of all systems to prevent any further, in my world, spread of infection from, from occurring. Yeah, you had yeah, to isolate, yeah, right? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, that's 100% correct. After all of the dust settled, what had happened is they noticed some anomalies occurring actually even earlier on Tuesday but nothing out of the ordinary. And then Wednesday, the anomalies became very significant and someone uncovered that there was indeed some malware on the system. And they literally, uh, they shut everything down so that it could not infect any further and could not open up the network to people actually getting information. No patient information escaped our network, which was a huge deal. I don't know if I'm allowed to name our vendor, but our, we are an Epic facility. And yeah, yeah that's a pretty common Epic one. Product. Yeah. So we have all Epic products. So, but you know, it's, it, it was beyond just Epic, the whole electronic health record. Like I said, they shut down anything that was software driven. Pneumatic tube systems didn't work. Digital oh. fax machines, digital, digital phone machines, didn't, digital phone lines didn't work. And we have a lot of digital phone technology. Network printers. We couldn't print yeah, anything couldn't print. off unless you could physically plug your computer into your printer. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So basically what you're talking about is you just took your laboratory back 35 years in the course of a day. Mm -hmm. That's really extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, they were doing paper charts on the floors. Yeah. I mean, we can go into the extent of what we did for downtime and how we navigated through it. But yeah, it was, it was literally, you could not rely on any technology to deliver healthcare any longer at this point. I think we're going to get into um, the nuts and bolts a little bit later about how you guys yeah, reacted. Yeah. So, Mark, did you did you have a question about about the downtime? Well, yeah, and I was just, you know, again, in hindsight, right, what you just explained makes perfect sense about the, you know, why they took everything that was plugged in offline, right? You just, you know, between the Internet of Things, everything, we have stuff connected to the Internet that we don't even think about being connected, right? So, in hindsight, it's so easy to be like, yes, that makes perfect sense. 
But at the time, what was that feeling like to be getting either support, non-support information, non-information? Obviously, you've got the binders, you've got the processes, but there's all that distraction about why don't I know? Why? What, how soon am I going to be able to get back to what I need to? How did you deal with that part of it? I think that was totally confusing, especially for the staff, the residents, and us on the floors. Well, this is all during COVID. We were sort of half-staffed most of the time anyway. But if you were working from home or you were, even if you were in the hospital, you still didn't know what was going on. You didn't have any email. And so your information came from your neighbor or somebody in the, in the lunchroom. It was probably two days later, um, you know, 48 hours into it that we recognized, you know, we didn't have email and now leadership is starting to communicate something and, you know, you can't text message 40 people. So we got a free app that everybody downloaded and was, you know, suffice as far as communication or immediate communication between people and set up chat groups and all that. Not HIPAA compliant, so no patient information could be shared, but that was a, a huge stress alleviator, I think, for a lot of us that were not necessarily at the leadership table and we're just still trying to truck along and wonder if the, you know, the lights were going to come back on. Well, especially what you just said about the number of people working from home, right? It's one thing if you are in the office, there is a chance at least that the rumor mill will give you some peace. But if you're at home and you have none of this connectivity electronically that you're used to, you know, you really are are off the grid. When we didn't know that that our email wasn't working. So I was trying, I was trying to send emails out and communicate with the world and I just never got a response. And it like five days later, all of those emails bounced back. When I thought I was, you know, following up with different people. So it was that unknown portion of it that was so bizarre. I have a, a quick question. In, in, in regard to uh, the magnitude of this, I know you're a multi-site, multi-facility, a medical practice. How many sites were affected? Was it just your, your primary medical center or was it multiple sites? And then even within that, you know, given that there's no electronic communication, how spread out are you? And did that geographic spread of the lab affect your communication at first? Yeah, so we are a health network. Um, we're seven hospitals in the health network, and then obviously a lot of physician clinic offices, mostly in Chittenden County, which is around Burlington, but spread out through the, almost the entire state. None of them were affected by it. Ironically, none of them had been put on the EPIC system yet. Had they been on the EPIC system, um, then they would have been shut down as well. But because they were all still on their standalone systems, and that's not the case today, we just finished our final go live this past weekend. So every hospital laboratory, every hospital in our network is now uh, on the same system. Um, had they been, it would have shut down everything even more. The indirect consequence to those laboratories was we had to divert specimens to them to do testing. You know, we are the medical center, the main campus is the reference lab for a lot of these, for these affiliate laboratories. They were now becoming kind of the reference lab and doing tests on site and sort of helping us to keep the volume down, um, which was huge because we just we, we became extremely inefficient relative to where we were when we had our electronic system. And the other thing that Toby that was also very challenging was all of the vendors that monitor our instrumentation, all of our, our reference labs that we sent to, they all disconnected. They said, we don't want to be on your, you know, we don't want to have any transfer of information because, you know, you, you guys might infect us. No one knew. I mean, literally nobody knew. So right, the yeah. safest thing to do was to, was to deconnect. Yeah. Like Chris, you said, they, you guys had to like isolate yourselves. Mark, you also, you asked a question about people knowing. I'll tell you one of the other things that was really hard 
is once we all started to learn that this was the cyber attack, so many people were thinking, oh my God, I hope I didn't, I didn't cause this. I hope it wasn't the email that I opened that did this. I mean, people were like literally fearful to the point where I remember the president of our hospital came down and, and was talking to folks and saying, look, these are smart, sophisticated people that did this. We're not out looking to how this happened. We just need to control it. But people were really fearful. Oh, sure, sure. Because I mean, that's so so much a part of um, like modern at workplace education, right? Like don't click on the PDF, don't click on the link, don't download anything unless you know the sender. Be really, really cautious. I mean, because I know that Mark, well, obviously Mark will know more about this than I do, but uh, I know at our workplace, we've had some pretty sophisticated phishing attacks that, you know, you can be internet savvy and be really on top of stuff and still be like, oh yeah, well, so-and-so just sent me this. I guess I need to look at it. I can, I understand where people were like, oh my God, I just caused like billions of dollars worth of damage to this wide, massive healthcare facility. You know, at the same time, you're not the criminal here. <laughs> on your team structure, do you have like liaisons to information technology team in the lab? Are there like designated ombudsmen or designated people who are sort of embedded in country with IT as far as, you know, pre this happening? Yes, we are. We're um, our lab information system. We have a couple of folks that are still within our department. They are, you know, directly report to leadership within our department. And then we have a person who's who was a former IT expert, and he's 50% IT, 50% lab. We call him a lab system architect, and he is our liaison to the IT team. And he was actually quite helpful during this whole process. He he decoded a lot of the language for us so that we physicians understood what was going on. Right. Yeah, that's great that you were set up again for that good communication and good. It is helpful to have that ombudsman person, that translator, right, who who has empathy and expertise for the lab side of the business, but also has some uh, acumen for what's going on on the IT side of things. Good for you guys. And it also was helpful, you know, given that in the middle of it, we realized that we at some point we were going to come out of it. And so you know, the preparation for return to uptime, what do we need to start thinking about? How is that going to look? It was a big part of it too. Not just getting, you know, 16 printers hooked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Christy can speak to, so this gentleman's name's John McConnell. And Christy, you can speak to what he did in microbiology for COVID reporting. Whoever implements a cyber attack during a pandemic Special, special place in, in you know, where yes. for them, yeah. Yeah, there's a special place for them. And so we went down on Wednesday. The world would have been a lot easier if our instruments would have gone down, right? Because then you stop testing. Our instruments were fine. We just couldn't get results out. I said we were constipated with results. Yes. Right? I came in on Saturday of Halloween and literally hand wrote a thousand COVID results. Oh, that is not sustainable. Right? No. Like that's just, so, and, and then those like we had to go do something with them. They had to get out of the lab. We had to figure out that process. <laughs> oh, and this John, would have been right at the beginning of the of that first winter first, wave we had. Yeah. I can't oh. say damage wasn't done because of this. I can't say that because those results then what's the next step? They go to public health or contract tracing. That was a manual process. We had to remember to do that. So Thank goodness we had somebody who was bright enough to take the file from our instrument, dump it into an Excel spreadsheet, which could then be essentially mail merged into a paper report in order to get results to the state health lab. 
we went out and bought encrypted thumb drives, <laughs> uploaded the Excel spreadsheet to an encrypted thumb drive and shipped it over to the public health lab, which thankfully is only about 10 minutes down the road so that they could get that information so they could do their contact tracing. We remembered to do that for COVID because it was top of our mind, but I can't tell you we did a great job with gonorrhea, chlamydia, any other report. Oh, yeah, or like the, yeah, like your shiga toxin testing or whatever. Yeah, yeah like that may have fallen through the cracks. Absolutely. Exactly. And something that we might want to talk about later is coming back up. We assumed that all systems would come up at the same time. Mm-hmm. Except that the state was very smart and didn't want to touch us with a 10-foot pole until they knew everything was working properly. So we assumed that now that we were reporting COVID results electronically, that they were flowing over to the state. And there was what, Andy, about a solid week that no results went to the state. So all of a sudden, Vermont has a big blip. When yeah. all of <laughs> it was like, here's, oh. here's <laughs> their data reporting blips they talk about in the, in the media, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Yep. So I, I, we keep kind of touching on workflow stuff. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, because in your articles you outline what you guys did pretty well. So I just want to briefly touch on that. Like some of the workflows changes that you made were pretty radical. So first off, I want you to talk about that, and then also I want to discuss if you guys had any pushback from from either like internally, like the techs, or like from other departments within the hospital. And do AP workflow, yeah. I don't know that, you know, to your question about did we have resistance? I don't think so. I think people were so stressed and so full of anxiety <laughs> that we kind of let's, just let's all work together and to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. So really what it was, you know, AP struggled because our lab, while we have a significantly lower volume than CP's lab, you know, processes, we we are a much more manual operation, right? We need more people and more time per specimen to get it from accessioning to the cutting room, to histology, to AP support, to the pathologist, and then finally to where it needs to go if we can read the writing on the requisition to know where to send it. And so, you know, we lost our computer connectivity, the ability to print cassettes, the ability to print slides, no tracking system. So our first stop was to figure out a standardized template for reporting results. And once we got that template, you know, just a Word document that contained all the necessary, you know, cap and clear information, we got a unique ID um, specimen number to track all those cases that we accessioned during downtime. We appropriately went from SU20 to FU20 and then started working through like our backlog of cases once we, you know, knew yeah. that this was an ongoing deal. So to to kind of walk through that manual process or what I mean by the burdensome nature of it was that the gross room, you know, once it was accessioned, things were written into a log, like just a binder, right? And then the specimen moved to the grossing bench and the grossing bench was staffed by two people. One, the person cutting in the specimen and two, a scribe, because we usually use a voice dictation software that could, you know, get your gross description into the computer. But we moved to paper and pencil. So the scribe was sitting, you know, write down whatever the person, you know, cutting the specimen was doing just because the person cutting couldn't realistically with their, you know, contaminated hands, go to a paper pencil model to get their transcription. The slides would then go to histology or the blocks rather. The paperwork would go to AP support who would type the gross description into that template that I referenced it was then printed because then we got, you know, our 16 printers delivered so that each person in AP support could print it. 
matched it with the slides, then it was given to the pathologist. The pathologist then, you know, looked at the slides, hand wrote their diagnosis, comment, microscopic description, returned the paperwork to AP support to compile. Then that paperwork was returned to the pathologist for proofing and editing. And either it went back through another cycle or it was, you know, signed, dated, and put into a to be faxed bin. Then we had, you know, kind of a whole new team to take over how to report it, make a cover sheet, locate the proper fax number, file it in multiple locations. So okay, listening to this, I'm, I'm already exhausted. Yeah. So I think, I think that just sort of underscores what you can see in the paper is that it needed to be drawn out, right? This is why we have these complicated schematics drawn out that were initially not quite as pretty as they are in the papers. They were, you know, on paper and pencil or on a whiteboard that were then, you know, screenshotted. But yes, terribly complicated. Well, and also it's it's quite clear to me that, you know, whatever downtime procedures you have, you're looking at a two-hour downtime, a 24-hour downtime, whatever. A lot of specimens in the AP lab, sure, they not, they, they might not need to be grossed and, and prepped uh, on the slides and stuff, but you can wait a day to read them. Whenever... You know, so your downtime procedures are different. It's mostly just like organizing to make sure you're ready to go when you come back up. For something like this, that ended up being a 25-day downtime, obviously that's untenable. You have to do exactly what you guys did. Yeah, you had to like undigitize a really complex process. Right. And I think part of that was, or the thing I think that we've all learned rather quickly was one, make sure your requisitions are filled out correctly, but then two, try to stop the volume. So, you know, we had... ORs and clinics that kept on rocking because they went to paper charting and the patients kept coming in and they had, you know, a long enough memory to know why they were still there. So initially volumes didn't go down. We also had a have a large component of reference clients. So out, these outside clinics and even outside in-network hospitals were totally functional. So they kept sending to us and not knowing that we were underwater. So, so, you, it, this so was, it, it this wasn't... I was going to say this would have been early enough in that first COVID peak that you guys hadn't shut down like elective surgeries yet or anything like that, right? No, because Vermont did great in the beginning. Oh, so our numbers Vermont. were initially. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. here in Chicago, yeah, um, that first winter they were they were shutting down everything. We, we got pretty bad pretty fast here the early on. So was one of the unintended consequences then of the sequestering of information that the outlying feeders didn't know to stop, right? And I mean, is that what you're kind of insinuating that, you know, it was happy business as usual in the collar around you, right? And yeah. since you weren't promoting the fact that, hey, this was a big cyber attack, how did they know to send somewhere else, right? How- well, so so there was the, hey, we're not talking about this, but there was also the, even if we wanted to talk about this, we don't have a way to contact you unless we're going to pick up the phone and physically call all of these different locations. One of the great uses of the free app that we were all used was we belong to NECLA, the Northeast Clinical Lab Alliance. And so we got contacts from all of that group in order to say, hey, send everything you can yeah. to a different laboratory. And that slowed things, but it it wasn't 100%. Right. But yeah, and those are really, I would not have thought about that stopping the volume until you brought it up. So that's, yeah, that's key. And just on the AP, talk about what we had to do to sort of even catch up with GI PAPS and DERM. Yeah. So, you know, we had a huge, you know, it was probably Monday before we thought we should probably do something about this large pile growing on the desk. And so some of it we were able to send out. We just 
you know, sent it on to another reference lab. But a portion of it or a high volume samples our GI and derm path. And we have a nearby hospital about 45 miles south of here that was not on Epic, as Andy had mentioned. They had their own LIS. So we emergently credentialed three, I think, pathologists, got two a PA and a histotech and a microtome and sent all of those folks plus the machinery and samples every day to offload a significant portion of volume from our AP lab, which was miraculous because they could input the lab, the final diagnosis straight into the computer. You know, we didn't even have to think about those aside from tracking them and keeping a log of those specimens. But that was a big win for us. You know, so if you've got a network hospital, use them. Right. That was smart. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Well played. Um, So you guys have talked a little bit about your processes for anatomic path. Can you guys kind of talk about how different it was for clinical pathology? You want to talk about general CP, Andy, and then I can take micro? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's general, if you think about the high volume areas, the chemistries, the hematologies, the routine coags, those were obviously really impacted. And, and, and we did, we followed our downtime procedures that we had, which were wholly inadequate for this process, (laughs) for this issue. I mean, even the backup computer process that is in our downtime policy with downtime labels and whatnot, I mean, we ran out of labels very quickly. Plus the labels weren't even scanning into the downtime computers because they were so disrupted. So we were literally accessioning every specimen by hand into <sighs> the analyzer. Um, <laughs> and then the, the and yeah. So, no standardization, so, so first name like, last, last name first, maybe a date of birth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, that was the other thing. It wasn't standardized. (laughs) Hematology was doing first name, last name. Chemistry was doing last name, first name. And so we had to say, wait a minute, everybody's got to do it the same way. So we stopped and got everybody doing it the same way. Filing, everybody, we had to come up with a filing system for all these results, but we'll get to that in a minute. So anyway, they would get accession into the the instrument. The, The technologist would run the specimen. The result would print off. And then the printed copy became your lab report. So there were no reference ranges on those. What the instrument reports out is not what uh, the name of the test that a provider orders. So they order a heparin level and we give them a computer printout that says anti-10A activity. And they're like, well, what are you talking about here? So we had to sort of transcribe some of these, give decoder rings. We created, the one thing we were fortunate was that we could use the hospital's guest network. So a a network that's on a completely different system. And our document control system is web-based. So we could go into our document control system. We created a downtime manual and made it public facing so that our clinicians could go in and look and see what is a reference range for this analyte or that analyte. So we put QR codes all over the hospital they could scan it on their phone. It would open up the downtime reference range document and they could go through and look for reference ranges. Our technologists were really good at looking at the results as they came off and they knew what criticals were for their section. So we could still notify criticals if we knew where the patient was. That was always a problem. So really early on in the process, I remember actually, I think it was our second day phone call. Christy Wojewoda said, We've got to stop them sending stuff down here and not knowing where we're supposed to send those results. We need someone to make sure everything comes on that requisition. So we literally placed what we called the bouncer outside the laboratory and nobody could drop a specimen off unless the requisition was complete and had the patient's 
identification and where the patient was so that we could send the results back to the proper unit. That was a game changer. That was mm -hmm. a huge one. I mean, that was huge because, you know, we would get like half a patient's name, maybe a birthday. Like we would get John, you know, Dr. Smith to report back to like, uh, that means nothing to me. The problem was because the ORs were still, were still going, like we would have stuff, you know, a culture from, you know, OR4. By the time the culture is ready to report, OR4 does not care about what that result is anymore. So trying to figure out where patients went to for things that took more than an hour, um, yeah. still a big challenge. Yeah, there was no hospital census, right? Because the, the electronic health record was down. So we actually knew where patients, we knew patients for the first two days because our blood bank ran the OR schedules two days ahead of time. So we actually provided the OR schedules to the OR for the first two days we were down. But then after that, it became not quite as uh, quite as helpful. So about Monday after downtime, they had a team that did nothing but walk around the hospital and catalog where everybody was and provide that census information to incident command. So you could call and say, hey, we need to find out where, you know, Jane Doe, date of birth, blah, 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 is. And they could look through their roster and find them. That, that's how manual that was for census. Wow. And I, I, I assume yeah. your lab, uh, the Clin lab, lost a whole bunch of automatic rules, auto verification, reflexing, all of those wonderful things we take for granted, too. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 We communicated that if you wanted a reflex test, we sent out what our reflex tests were to clinicians. And we said, you can, here is the reflex testing policy. It's up to you to try to order what you need. And then the other one was calculations. So calculated results, we provided them guidance on how to do calculated results. Some of the critical ones we did, but some of the less than critical calculated results, we asked the providers to do it and provided them the calculation. We did, just like AP talked about, we really did work to shut down the volume coming in, both by diverting to other labs, but we have 27 outpatient phlebotomy sites that we run, we closed it down to two. Oh wow! Um, just to control the just to control the volume. Kind of a good exercise yeah, though in test utilization, right? Like, do you need the <laughs> CBC right this very second? So we had what what we called orphan results. So similar to to AP, things were in motion, were in flight, like in the clinical microbiology laboratory. All we had was a specimen ID barcode which on the plates, for example, which means nothing. Like there's, there's no way to tie that back to a patient. And so- oh, so your plates didn't even have like name, ID number, it's just a barcode. We had a name and a specimen ID, but a name by itself doesn't mean anything. Right. And so we finaled those out. We hand wrote those, those results and we just like left them in a pile. Like maybe somebody will call for this at some point in time. It's so sad when like nobody really wanted that result. There was nothing- <laughs> Right, because um, they didn't know it was missing. They didn't know no, it was missing. No, everything Andy said was was accurate, but I, you downplayed the hardest part, Andy, which was getting the <laughs> results out. So yep. we had we basically had two processes, whether it was stat or routine, and then we had runners who were people from IT who weren't busy because there was no computer there were no computers for them to work on radiology because a lot of, I mean, most of their stuff is computer-based. Um, so everybody who was furloughed or couldn't do their work the normal way, they put on like 15 miles walking the hospital, picking up results, dropping them off to the units, 
picking up samples, bringing them down to the laboratory. Again, we had separate processes, whether it was inpatient versus outpatient versus emergency department for, we had to set up a whole separate fax process for outpatients. That's if we got like an outpatient location that made sense to us. Like sometimes it was just like family medicine. Like I can't get this to anybody. Perfect. Um, There's like 12 family medicines in this practice. (laughs) And, And then because people were used to just the results being available to everybody instantaneous, when the result would land wherever it needed to land, somebody would walk away with it. They put it in their pocket and walk away with it. So we would have to reset uh, the same result like five different times because nobody was communicating with each other right. or it didn't live in the patient chart like it used to. Like when I was in medical school, like a, a print off would come and you would put it in that chart and nobody would touch that again. Like nobody had been through that in so long. And so these filing cabinets, we had to staff with, again, people who were furloughed, our residents, and they were just continuing to receive requests for results that we thought had gotten to their rightful home, but didn't land in the, when, in the right person's hand. And oftentimes there were results that we had documented, we faxed like three or four times because different people needed them. Again, the testing was the easiest part. Yeah, we needed more hands to do the same amount of work, just because it was manual, but we could figure that out pretty quickly. It was getting the results into the hands that they needed to, that to me was the the trickiest part. Right. Well, and when the master record is digital, then the paper is truly disposable or recyclable. No one cares that you have the copy because someone's going to print another one when they need it. Right. And that mind shift of this source of truth is actually this paper is like you said, a long time ago, that's yeah. And on that point, you know, clinicians didn't have any past information. So, you know, on day three, patients would show up in clinic, but the doctor would have no idea why they were there. And sometimes the patient didn't know why they were there. Or worse yet, you know, they were there to get their chemotherapy, but didn't have a diagnosis or a cocktail of what they're supposed to be getting. So we would get phone calls or visitors down to AP to say, can you, you know, look up this patient? And you say, no, I have no idea. I mean, we've got slides, files and files and files of slides, but I have no idea how to to look that up without an EMR. Right. Very right. disconcerting. Or even even something so simple as like finding a trend line, right? Like is someone's potassium trending up or down? Or that's really simple. Whenever you're, you've got an EMR, it'll, it'll delta flag. It will tell you like, hey, this is a greater than 20% change. Maybe do something about it. But if everything's on paper and no one's talking to each other, adequately, those trend lines are really hard to miss. So I want to talk a little bit about transfusion medicine, because we've kind of covered AP and CP, and we touched a little bit on micro, but the papers don't talk a lot about transfusion medicine. So can you talk a little bit about that, Andrew? Yeah. So, I mean, transfusion medicine is, the fortunate thing is volume-wise, though very manual, it's not significant, significant volume. And and transfusion medicine sections of laboratories are quite able to work in their usual downtime module to do what they need to do. So the real challenge there was being sure that our double, our double safety, triple safety checks occurred and making sure that we did it in the laboratory, we did it at the handoff, and then it was done at the bedside. Similar to what already is there. I mean, those are all very manual processes. But we had to be very, very careful and double and triple check everything that was done. 
Inventory control was a bit of an issue there, inventory management, because we depend on our LIS system to show us what our current inventory. So our inventories became very manual. So we had to make sure we had enough inventory. And then ordering from our supplier, we had to explain to them we were in a downtime and that we had to do downtime ordering or manual ordering rather than using their system called Blood Hub, which allows us to order blood as we need it. So I would definitely say that we had more people on site to be sure that we were doing all of the manual checks and we had to control our inventory in a manual process rather than reliance on the computer system. Those were the three real big areas. We were unable to use our, um, we have a ED that has a blood hub refrigerator in it and it triggers a signal to the laboratory when someone takes blood out that we didn't have. So we had to check regularly with the ED to find out what their inventory was down there. But generally speaking, I think that the transfusion medicine service, again, some of the surgeries have been canceled just due to, you know, not being able to process patients through the OR as quickly. But a lot of the safety checks, which are already manual, or if they were computerized, we moved to manual very quickly. Christy was talking about resulting in filing. I mean, our filing system started off by day of service, and we quickly, after four days or five days of that, went to filing by patient, whether it was inpatient versus outpatient, and then by patient's last name, comma, first name. So every patient had their own file. That way you could look up results relatively quickly. And then COVID had its own file. Yes, COVID, COVID was, was a totally separate file. Yeah, and, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, part of the COVID issue was, you know, we are still, I don't, I don't know how weird we are, but we're still testing all prior to all procedures, testing for COVID. And so we needed those COVID results to live in our customer service area because they were continually getting called to ensure What's this that, result? What's this result? What's this result? Yeah. yeah. Is this patient, are they good to go for their surgery? Is this uh, employee good to come back to work? Yeah. You know, all of, within these four walls, I think people did a pretty good job of we're throwing on an N95 and we're assuming everybody's positive until somebody tells me otherwise. But some of that other screening testing that was that was happening was really tricky. Oh, yeah. Andy, I want to circle back a little bit. And uh, first, you'll have to forgive me. I'm a little bit rusty on my blood bank. I haven't worked the bench in blood bank for like 17 years. But I would think that a potential issue that you guys could have faced would have been somebody that's got a known antibody, but they're just not uh, at detectable levels in terms of your screening methods. Um, Did you guys run up against that where you normally would have uh, done like a you know, kid negative unit where now you don't know that they've got a kid antibody. Yeah. So we have paper copies of results, some of our results going way back. So for some patients, we were able to pull that information, but you are correct. For some patients that were new and only stored in our LIS system, we we would have been blinded to that. You are 100% correct. We did not, knock wood, run into any of those issues during that downtime. Um, Oh, good. That was going to be my follow-up question. If like you had any... Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. less than optimal yeah, yeah. patient out- outcomes due to that. No, we, we did not. We did not. Thank goodness. Um, yeah, we were really lucky. Real quick, Mark or Toby, I can't remember which one asked the question. Like, was there pushback at any level from the hospital? I would say no. Our hospital was very supportive. I mean, they were, you know, if you need to close phlebotomy sites, close phlebotomy sites. I think one of the unintended consequences, though, is that laboratories are really good at process. We're, this is what we live and breathe. We, we think through how to look at the system of our processes and we flex pretty quickly. I mean, yeah, it, at the time it didn't seem like it was evolving quickly enough, but it, relatively speaking, we evolved much faster than other sections of the hospital. And I think 
we ultimately got really good at getting our results ready and getting them faxed out. But small provider offices, smaller units in the hospital, they couldn't handle the volume of data that was coming to them, now all paper. I mean, lab is faxing them stuff, radiology is faxing them stuff. I mean, people are, are they're getting stuff from all over the place. And they, what do I do with 100 faxes an hour in a, in a, in a small clinic office? So the unintended consequence was, yeah, we, we, we stepped up the game and I think did quite well. I'm not surprised people were calling and asking for results because they just couldn't manage that volume of data coming in manually. When you think about that same thing you were discovering about first name, last name, last name, first name, is it month, year, date? Is it like, do you put the year yeah. first? Are you like dashes or, you know, so think about all those small offices, yeah. right? They have that same exact problem. They got a yeah. hundred pieces of paper coming out of the fax machine. How are they even filing it? Right. I mean, it's, it just right. uh, compounds exactly. it. Well, my favorite lesson learned by far and away for you guys paying it forward to the next unfortunate health system is to hire a bouncer at the door. I, that, that is just, <laughs> that is not something I would have thought I would come out of this hour. And I'm so pleased. Hopefully no one listening <laughs> to this podcast. Ever average needs raising to take, bouncers. Right. That's yeah. the tagline for the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, hopefully, hopefully no one listening ever needs these lessons learned, but you know, from a tech perspective, you know, this use of the guest network, really smart, this quickly figuring out that, you know, printers still can connect to computers via cables, assuming you can get to Best Buy fast enough. Um, using people's <laughs> personal phones with QR codes, those really smart things to do. What other kind of tech things would you, you know, pay it forward to others having lived through this? Something we, I wish we would have done sooner is on the microbiology side, we went out and bought label printers and labeled plates with printed labels. Um, it was still, you know, manual entry and it didn't have a barcode, but it's way better than reading, you know, sloppy Joe's handwriting. And especially if you're labeling seven plates plus a slide and a thio broth, like having everything match, that was smart. And I wish we would have thought about it sooner. Um, so those little barcode thermal printers, like that just hook up directly to the laptop, those, those kind of printers, label printers. Yep. yep. We also just used um, like a regular printer with like, Avery uh, envelope, labels. envelope labels. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Sure. To like put it in once and copy and paste yep. and print that off per patient. And then, yeah, the in microbiology, at least the patient results don't come off one patient per sheet that you, you run a batch. And so you've got, you know, anywhere from 10 to 200 patients. And so being able to transmit that into an Excel spreadsheet in order to print off results, that was a game changer for COVID because otherwise we, we never could have continued to handwrite um, patient results. Okay, cool. Thank you. Make sure you know everybody's cell phone number and, and or personal email so that you can contact them when your outlook goes down. Be sure that your laboratory has paper copies of their provider dictionaries because oh. all your provider information yeah. is in your electron. Yeah, and that they're up to date. We, I mean, I don't know who or what was looking over us, but we have a lab customer service technology person who liked to have a paper copy of our provider dictionaries, and she printed them out fairly regularly and she had just printed it like three days prior wow. oh betty we love betty yeah i just yeah. i just gave yeah. her yeah. Name, whatever. <laughs> so yeah so that is that is definitely something so it's part of our process now our lab customer service prints a paper copy of our provider dictionary once a month how many Again, trees were harmed during your system. downtime? Oh, so many trees. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I've yeah, never seen yeah. that much paper in my life. Yeah, yeah. It they they looked at hire well they looked at how they were going to hire um, how to destroy all this paper you know to shred it. Oh and yeah. They were looking at outside firms and they were talking mile they were giving us quotes in miles of paper that they were going to shred. I mean it was just <laughs> ridiculous. It, it was yeah. Oh yeah, my. Okay, so real talk. I could talk about this for another hour. But I've uh, already taken up enough of your time, so we're going to kind of wrap it up. I want to, uh, first off, thank all of you guys for participating. Like I said, this conversation was great. I read your papers when they came through the system with gusto. Like I said, it was basically like reading a horror novel. Like, holy, holy cow. So thank you for being on the podcast. I think I know I learned a lot. I hope our listeners got a lot out of it, too. And also, I want to remind our listeners to a subscribe to the podcast b tell your friends and neighbors about the podcast and three make sure to to, uh get your cme and cmle for listening to this podcast and at the ascp store at ascp.org